What is the highest technique you hope to achieve? We have no technique. Very good. What are your thoughts when facing an opponent? There is no. friends, I'm Arnold Schroeder, and this is Fight Like an Animal. You can find episode bibliographies at againsttheinternet.com, where you can also find my contact information, and I encourage correspondence of all varieties. And if you want to support the heroic exertions that go into making this podcast, please find me patreon.com slash biological singularity. Friends, Are you ready for the most absolutely insane episodes of Fight Like an Animal by a huge margin? If the answer is yes, continue listening. If the answer is no, do not. Because we are going to get into some wild, freaky territory this time. And we are going to go on a massive sprawling journey. We are going to attempt a massive act of synthesis. But at the same time... We are going to do it in a somewhat more dreamlike fashion. I'm going to do a little less of an overbearingly technical thing, even though I certainly will be citing a whole lot of papers and books and stuff like that. It's like a sense in which this is a little bit, um, a little bit more informal um, of, of an approach to the outlining. And um, I will also be, hopefully, as a uh, means of something like a compensation, telling more stories, which um, will, because we're, we're trying to get into the internal architecture, the human psyche, and figure out why we are behaving in these insane ways that we are behaving in. And, uh, you know, so like, we're going to get into some aspects of internal experience and we are in order to uh to meaningfully make sense of that because trying to abstractly describe it with technical language be a fucking nightmare um we are going to get into the realms of you know dreams and visions and stuff like that and um and i will assess some ones that have been written down by others and i will uh describe some of my own in fact, I outlined this episode in uh, two distinct ways, referring to because we are going to uh, be talking about two types of information processing, uh, one belonging to the right brain and one belonging to the left hemisphere of the brain. Um, I outlined this episode kind of, or the series, along, um, along the lines of like those two forms of information processing. So first I did this kind of gestalt overview where I just kind of rolled with some spatial metaphors and you know there was like some labeling and stuff but it was pretty minimal on the language and uh, that you know that would be the the right brain mode of outlining a podcast and yeah and it worked I I had a a good sense of where it was all going and then I uh, took a photo of that and erased the whiteboard and uh, did, you know, this very like linear sequential thing with a whole lot of language um, describing the podcast in those terms. And uh, I did a lot of like physical activity while I was doing the outlining. And that all that all will relate to 
uh, what we're talking about in the course of these episodes, you know, embodied cognition and, uh, and all that good stuff. Um, so the first story that I'll tell is about the, uh, the title of the series, uh, Life is Holy War, um, and where it came from, which is that last summer in Portland was kind of an epic summer for like renegade shows, it felt like. Um, I, I told a version of this story on uh, Patreon a while ago, which is, you know, obviously why you should go throw me a couple dollars at Patreon. But um, there was this one place in particular that I was like, I just had these like really magical experiences at which was, I think it was in a, an abandoned car dealership, but it's, you know, it's this thing, place in Portland um, with like, just like wild stuff going on. Like, you know, kids have poured like uh, concrete uh, skate ramps in there and there's like stolen cars that have been super stripped down and just like, of course, graffiti everywhere and all that, uh, quite a bit of trash. And, uh, you know, like I... I I went to some things there that just felt so alive and vital. And uh, my friends and I were trying to organize this performance over and over again in Portland uh, last summer and into the fall. Like we wanted to, you know, find a place to drag a generator and we just kept having and do a show and we just kept having terrible luck. And I was getting sicker and sicker and honestly crazier and crazier as the journey was progressing and, you know, it's like we almost did it one time at the spot on the Willamette River and, you know, like picked a lock to get past the gate and did all this stuff. And then we got intercepted by some very, very angry security guards and we tried to do it this other time. I don't know. It like it got into this territory where it felt like this heroic uh, journey that we were on and we like really came together in the end, like it felt really hard to make a call this third time that we were trying to do this performance and at the same time but you know but we did and we like came together and it felt incredible to just kind of like get all warrior about it and go like do this performance in this abandoned building and uh but you know and at the same time like my blood pressure uh was taken right before I uh, went to go do it at dialysis and it was like over 211 over, uh, you know, like 125 or something. And I, you know, I was like, well, okay, if I die, I die. And uh, I had in a very hasty fashion and in a matter of like a couple of days put together this track called Life is Holy War, and I was drumming and singing over it and dancing around and whatever else, and uh, it was like really this sense as I went into it where I was like, I truly could die, but this is like, this would be a great way to say goodbye, and you know, I've really found that mode that I seek out when I do performances, like I really lost myself in it, and it, it felt really amazing. <laughs> and insanely perilous and so uh this uh this series is about uh is about the fundamental like tension between opposites that comprises existence on one level so i figured life is holy war is as good a name as any and now i don't have blood pressure like that and i'm not nearly as sick as i was and uh i had that's for a variety of reasons 
Um, I had, you know, but I had surgery, so I had cancer and, uh, now I don't. And, uh, I'm starting to feel a whole lot better, which I don't know. I just honestly didn't even occur to me that I'd get surgery and actually just like feel really good and be like, oh, I don't have cancer and that does make life better. Um, but, uh, I've been also in this like really, uh, just like totally cozy, sufficient, easy to inhabit space. And I'm getting a lot done. I'm noticing that, um, I'm working more, the more comfortable and sane I feel, the more I work in parallel, the more I, you know, I just kind of like distribute the paths to all of my objectives. I don't know. So I've been, which is interesting because that ties into what we're talking about. So I've been getting a lot done, including it took a few drafts. It took a few times to kind of like wake up to the reality of it and be like, I'm really doing this. But I've started writing my book, uh, Fight Like an Animal in Search of a Science of Survival. And I really feel like deeply in the flow of it. And it's an amazing uh, process to inhabit. It's, it's a wild fucking ride i'm enjoying it so much and so uh the second story is from the beginning of that book or you know there's an introduction but okay so just like the podcast episode this is called why political arguments don't change people's minds or it's the beginning of a section called that let me tell you two stories about a mountain they don't say anything about politics according to most definitions But I think we can learn more about politics from them than in many graduate programs devoted to the subject. Here's one. The mountain and I contemplate one another in mutual silence. It seems this mutual presence, the fact that I am here before the mountain and the mountain is before me, the fact that there is no clear boundary between us and yet I am not it and it is not me, this very fact of difference between us, but also no difference between us, this seems to be what gives us existence. It seems we mutually constitute one another. And the process is never finished because we are never exactly the same man or the same mountain. I've been up the mountain more times than can be enumerated, but I will never know all the paths up the mountain. The dirt, Red in places where the ground is bare and the trees give way to great gouges and jumbles of rock slips beneath my feet, and I know the path has changed. A cougar also walks this mountain. We know one another from footprints and many other signs, and we are always at least somewhat aware of one another's presence. When I am tired, I cover myself in the decaying leaves of maples and the flat, waxy boughs of cedars and sleep. Okay, here's another. The mountain made me nervous, and so I hesitated to settle here at its base. But I did because it had what I needed. I wanted flat land, a land with sparse shapes and clean, straight lines, a place of order and exactitude and a view in every direction to detect any approaching danger. And it was here. I haven't had any trouble so far, but still the mountain made me nervous. So when I finished building my house and setting in my firewood and making sure I had everything I needed to get through winter very well fed, I built a wall between the house and the mountain. 
so that no wild animals could come down from there to harass me. But the uneasiness remains, and so, in order to assess potential threats from the mountain, I have begun to map it. Because I think the danger of going up it is too great, I have mapped it from afar, according to a set of categories I devised. The mountain has thus been reduced, in my taxonomy, to a set of ideal shapes, and these arranged in order of their potential for concealing threat. This allows me to survey the mountain from a distance with maximum vigilance. Nothing is coming through if I don't allow it. Imagine these two stories are being told by two different people. Further imagine that they meet and start arguing about politics. Tell me you don't know who supports the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 and who opposes it. Tell me you don't know who believes it's fine to get high and who thinks we need to cage more people as punishment for doing so. Tell me you don't know who thinks the mountain should be clear-cut and who would never think of such a thing. There's nothing more profoundly stupid than drawing a line through a complex reality and saying everything on one side or the other belongs to a definitive category. But then again, reality is built on a tension of opposites, or as Heraclitus said, war is the father of all things. And it is indisputably true that this terminology is a part of the world we live in, so I might as well say, tell me you don't know who is left and who is right. Politics is about group decision-making. It's the attainment, distribution, and maintenance of power to make decisions in groups. And it is always happening in any group that makes decisions, whether it is acknowledged or not. When it is not, this fact in itself allows for certain kinds of power to be exercised. But there are no groups in either of these stories. There's exactly one person, and there's a mountain. And yet the first one is unmistakably more likely to have a more egalitarian worldview, and the latter is unmistakably more likely to tend to authoritarianism. This is because right, authoritarian, and left, egalitarian, worldviews reflect basic psychological dispositions to the world, of which political orientations are just one manifestation. Although we will talk about how these meanings of left and right can get confused, and the senses in which left authoritarianism definitely does exist, as well as making a case that these terms should be ha perhaps be deeply reconceptualized. So, if this were true, we would expect that psychologists would have devised metrics of behavior and perception that have no overt connection to politics whatsoever, and yet still predict political outlooks. And this is precisely the case. Positions on specific political issues, war, say, or the death penalty, can be predicted from short questionnaires that ask unrelated and, in some cases, quite ridiculous questions, and from the physiological responses people have to pictures of sharks and loud noises, from strategies adopted in experimental games, from the organization and content of living spaces, from the use of gesture and conversations, from how people interpret facial expressions, and from the size of structures in people's brains. But when we yell at each other about politics, we don't talk about these things. 
We don't say that our core orientations towards the world lead us to our political perspectives. We argue about politics in a far more abstract way, seemingly convinced that language contains within it a system of rules that can definitively show something to be true or not. It doesn't. The way we typically talk about politics assumes not only that we can make an indisputable case for our perspective, but also that we arrived at this perspective by carefully following a process of axiomatic reasoning, which we are now wearily explaining to the moron on Twitter who apparently doesn't know anything about reasoning processes. What are these two fundamental orientations to the world expressed in these two stories? We are about to consult a panoply of scientific findings, but because I have a theoretical framework to present, and the stories illustrate it pretty well, let's characterize them in my own terms first. In the authoritarian story about the mountain, he is afraid. He explicitly says so, whereas the egalitarian isn't. As a corollary, the egalitarian story is one of approach, and the authoritarian story is one of avoidance. Maybe that's not terribly surprising, since authoritarians want things like border walls. But the authoritarian seems to be intent on drawing lines absolutely everywhere, in every sense, including, particularly, within his own mind. The egalitarian sees a world of ambiguity and complexity, sees things as both true and not true, and in terms of local difference whereas the authoritarian sees things in rigid categories, as definitively existing on one side of the lines he has drawn or another, and has a tendency toward global abstraction, reducing the mountain to a series of shapes seen from a distance. The authoritarian is far more concerned with appeasing his appetites and guaranteeing personal comfort and security. The egalitarian seems to be more concerned with pursuing adventure at the least, perhaps even exalted unity with all of existence. And so the authoritarian story features stasis and being stationary, whereas the egalitarians features change and movement, both in the sense of their respective behavior, with one traveling and one staying home, but also in the sense of how they perceive the mountain, the egalitarian seen as a process of continuous change, whereas the authoritarian believes he has definitively mapped it. Everyone contains both these stories of the mountain, or in any case, the modes of perception that produce them. To the extent that people are stably attached to one mode or another, and this is reflected in a stable difference in political orientation, this is a difference in emphasis as opposed to some absolute lack of capacity for both types of awareness. But only one of these stories is true, and it is the egalitarians. It is a true story in two senses. First, the somewhat trivial one, it's autobiographical. It's about a mountain owned by timber and mining companies that I lived at the base of outside of Olympia, Washington, before eventually building a hut on the mountain and living in it. The story is a mercilessly concise summary of something I wrote during that time called The Mountain and I Contemplate One Another in Mutual Silence. But far more importantly, it is a true story in the sense that it is the only story about the mountain that knows anything about the mountain. I emphasize my lack of knowledge and certainty 
but it is the only one of the two stories that gives you any awareness of the fundamental reality of the mountain. The other story's narrator has a lot of rigid confidence about his knowledge of the mountain, but he hasn't been on it. But for as much as I believe the only way to know the mountain is to go up the mountain and to embrace the paradoxical reality that you will never know the mountain, and for as much as I am avowedly egalitarian, both types of perception are important. I couldn't have gone up the mountain all those times if the person who told the other story wasn't also inside me, wasn't also me. I couldn't have made the same mental map of it, or read the book that contained the instructions for building the hut, and abstracted them from their context and applied them to the living world of branches that I inhabit, or known when it was time to come down from the mountain and ride my bike to work so that I could keep buying food to get the energy to keep having mystical experiences. So a functional existence requires both modes, but the egalitarian mode has primacy. A failure of synthesis could result in an exclusive engagement of either, and this would be catastrophic and characteristic of the world we live in today. Note that synthesis is not balance. I did not go halfway up the mountain every other day. I went to the top every day observing the way no two patterns of water dripping off the red alder onto the mossy ground were ever the same, stopping to trace the cougar's footprints in the mud with my finger. I embraced the egalitarian mode entirely, but like I said, I also went to work rather than wandering enchanted into starvation. An overarching, axiomatic characteristic of our current age is ever-intensifying specialization and fragmentation, the creation of increasingly decisive boundaries between hyper-elaborated perceptual niches. No matter how much truth those niches contain, the very fact of that fragmentation means there is something that within them we are always obligated not to know. That this work is an effort at integration should be borne in mind while reading my description of right and left psychologies. Okay, so that's from my book. And it's describing the right-left divide. But if you listen to my last episode, The Life and Death of Radical Environmentalism, in which I cited Ian McGilchrist's The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World, which will be a consistent guide for us on the journey that is this series, you might have also noticed that my description of these two types of awareness of the world corresponds pretty precisely to McGilchrist's description of the world of the right and left brain hemispheres. And that's no coincidence. So here's the probably fairly easy part to accept of what I'm about to say, um, is that I, I believe that this is the case. I believe that what I have previously described as the biology of aggression and its correlated traits which is mediated by developmental processes that are wrapped up in something called neural crest cells, which migrate from the back of our heads on the dorsal end, you know, and, uh, and go all sorts of different places and do all sorts of different things, some of which mediate aggression and some of which just, you know, have a bunch of functional significance for a bunch of other traits. 
Um, you know, I have always said that that is the biology of the right left divide. Um, I believe that this has, this is heavily mediated by a difference in how much primacy is given to uh, either hemisphere of brain. Um, and that it's one of those things because, as Michael Christ describes, the two hemispheres have pretty like irreconcilable modes of processing, and that a lot of the connections between them are um, actually there to inhibit. Uh, interaction so that they can kind of do their mutually irreconcilable forms of assessment of the world in relative isolation. And then, you know, of course, there's some material in the corpus callosum and in other structures that connects them that allows a synthesis, but a, a precarious synthesis and a paradoxical, you know, a, a paradoxical synthesis involving a tension which is never resolved between the two modes. Um, so because it is such a, a delicate balance, I believe minor perturbations in, um, the architecture of the brain and the functioning of the brain can, uh, sort of shift the paradigm over to the sort of like global wholesale perspective of one brain hemisphere or another. And that, that is ultimately the biology of the right-left divide has everything to do with brain hemispheres. So that, I, I don't know, hopefully if you've made it on some, you know, some extent of this journey with me already, that's probably not super crazy. But then the part that I'm going to claim that might feel a little more insane that I have believed for a long time on a purely in intuitive level, which is what a lot of this series is about, is about the ways in which various cultural processes and cultural materials exhibit an intuition about precisely that divided nature of our being throughout, you know, the broad sweep of history. I have intuitively always thought that the very terminology of right and left reflects an unconscious process of us conceptualizing precisely that, precisely the influence of the different brain hemispheres and the different selves that are comprised of the, by those brain hemispheres. Um, it is, you know, like actually just us referring to our brain hemispheres. And it should be borne in mind here that uh, there's this contralateral organization of uh of you know vertebrates so like all all chordates of which vertebrates are a subcategory have this unique architecture where their bodies are connected to the opposite side of their brain this this contralateral architecture um, so the right side of our brains uh is attached to you know like the left side of our bodies and vice versa. So if someone were described, if, if the version of ourselves that is the left brain were describing itself, it would say, I am the right. And if the version of ourselves that is the right brain were describing itself, it would say, I am the left. And we are going to get into this aspect of it, this, you know, this like 
political aspect, this right-left politics aspect of it more. Um, but that's not like the whole broad sweep of the, the series. Like I said, it really is about this broader reality of times that we somehow managed to conceptualize this dual reality and the conflict between them in all these different ways. And so the terminology right-left and the politics they describe is merely one instance of this. Um, but to, to give it some kind of weight for the time being, let me read you a couple McGillchrist quotes that sound an awful lot, although he's talking about information processing modes that belong to the respective brain hemispheres. Um, it, you know, sounds an awful lot like, uh, he could be talking about right left politics. Check it out. He says, the left hemisphere is competitive, and its concern, its prime motivation, is power. He also says, It may well be that we and the great apes before us are not the originators of the asymmetry and hemisphere function, not even the originators of the nature of that asymmetry, but inheritors of something much older than ourselves, which we have utilized and developed in peculiarly human ways to peculiarly human ends. It is not just human beings who have found that there are needs, drives, or tendencies which, while equally fundamental, are also fundamentally incompatible. An essentially divisive drive to acquisition, power, and manipulation based on competition, which sets individual against individual in the service of unitary survival, and an essentially cohesive drive towards cooperation synergy, and mutual benefit, based on collaboration, in the service of the survival of the group. Right, it doesn't sound wildly astray from how we talk about egalitarian versus authoritarian politics. But isn't that fun, how he's talking about how it seems like these different types of information processing reflect something deep within the structure of reality, a fundamental opposition, which indeed gives birth to reality. And so I know I read this last time, but let me, let me toss the best quote to that effect that I think is in the book at you one more time. It's from just like a paragraph or two later, uh, from that quote I just read that maps so beautifully to left-right politics. The most fundamental observation that one can make about the observable universe, apart from the mysterious fact that it exists at all, prompting the ultimate question of philosophy, why there is something rather than nothing, is that there are at all levels forces that tend to coherence and unification, and forces that tend to incoherence and separation. The tension between them seems to be an inalienable condition of existence, regardless of the level at which one contemplates it. The hemispheres of the human brain, I believe, are an expression of this necessary tension. And so this gets into this question about the nature of reality, which is, is there any, does anything have an existence except in distinction from or opposition to something else, right? Or in other words, is some sort of opposition or asymmetry um, 
or division kind of like what existence is, truly fundamental to existence. So when I was a little kid, here's another story, storytelling time again. When I was a little kid, I used to read the dictionary for hours at a time. And it was with a growing sense of horror. Because as I did so, I encountered precisely this facet of reality, right? Everything was defined in terms of something else, um, often in opposition to something else. And I started to really get disoriented and think, well, my God, what are the fundamental states? What are the fundamental categories of reality or properties of the universe that don't just exist in opposition to something else? What is it that just has this sort of absolute existence, this inherent reality to it that I assumed were sort of like the first things that we would grasp or come to know, right? That, and then we could come to know everything else in relation to or in opposition to those things. So a couple things. McGillchrist has also uh, endured these torments and read a lot more like Western philosophy and stuff like that about these very questions. And uh, so here's one thing he says about it. As Gregory Bateson says, all knowledge has to be knowledge of distinction, and it is something other than the self, equally. One might say that all experience is experience of difference. Even at the sensory level, we cannot experience anything unless there is a change or difference. Our sensory nerves quickly fatigue, and we become accustomed, for example, to a smell or to a sound. Our senses respond to the difference between values, to relative not absolute values. It seems that knowledge and perception, and therefore experience, exist only in the relations between things. Perhaps indeed everything that exists does so only in relationships, like mathematics or music. There are aspects of quantum physics that would support such a view. And then he also says, I am talking about the fact that every word in and of itself, eventually has to lead us out of the web of language, to the lived world, ultimately to something that can only be pointed to, something that relates to our embodied existence. Even words such as virtual or immaterial take us back in their Latin derivation, some, sometimes by a very circuitous path, to the earthly realities of man's strength, virtus, or to the feel of a piece of wood, materia. Everything has to be expressed in terms of something else, and those something else's eventually have to come back to the body. So yeah, you know, we can we can answer the question of how we could come to know something um, by, you know, by recourse to evolutionary theory. What, what I didn't have at the time when I was like nine and reading the dictionary a bunch is, you know, this notion that we, we do in fact have templates for reality and learning kind of refines them but yet yeah, but we do in fact have conceptual structures that we are born with that map to reality and that like he said all these abstract conceptual systems we have in language ultimately reduce to embodied metaphors to things we can understand with our bodies 
and then that reality of uh you know the uh the everything existing in opposition or relation to something else you know is like we can invoke this notion that one way to think of ourselves is as the universe becoming aware of itself that that's a good way to think about the progression of evolution and our accumulation of all this wonderful knowledge about the nature of the reality that we inhabit um you know and so that so there it is that's that would be a deep insight into the nature of the reality we inhabit from the big bang right from there being some repulsion some conflict some opposition between two differentiated realities of some kind or another um all the way through the you know the structure of our brains and the, the evolution of our you know brain hemispherization into the reality of right left politics and the fact that they are you know central to questions of continued existence this idea that the, at every level of description one sees this sort of cosmic war this tension between opposites being played out and existence being comprised of that tension of opposites which i think is a pretty cool conceptual structure and so employing this lens of this very sort of like unresolvable tension and this like very acute balance of power that's always sort of ever fluxing and um and unstable between the two hemispheres and their modes of processing um you know we will look in this series at times like phases where one has predominated over another and how different cultural and material conditions can promote one type of processing or another and we'll talk about how the sort of like feedback loop between biology and technology that we are currently in is very strongly favoring left hemisphere processing and to give some kind of like tentative examples of what i mean um i'll invoke a few pieces of evidence from uh both this paper called the weirdest people in the world weird standing for western educated industrialized uh, rich and democratic like people who come from societies that could be characterized as such um and from a book of the same name um and so the the piece of evidence from the paper is uh there's this thing i think that i have talked about this at some point or other on the podcast there's um an optical illusion called the muller lyer illusion which is two uh lines of equal length are presented on top of each other and they have uh you know like arrow like structures uh either going in or out from those lines um that people in societies that have uh, a bunch of 90 degree angles in them people who have grown up in you know a bunch of boxes uh how tend to see these lines as uh unequal whereas people who have not grown up around these shapes 
that are found nowhere else in the world but places of you know human man but the human manufactured world um just don't have the optical illusion right and as as we will find out as we go through the series the 90 degree angle is very much a product of the left hemisphere and its modes of reasoning. So, you know, we see this thing where we live in these things that the left hemisphere has built. We all live in these boxes and we stare at screens and, you know, like I read books and write on my whiteboard and on pieces of paper and it's all just a whole bunch of 90 degree angles. I'm here at my 90 degree angles desk or whatever and how that changes your actual perception of things involving 90 degree angles. And you no longer see the world as it truly is. Um, and then the other is that is about literacy and the effects of literacy. And this is from the book, um, you know, put, put both the book and the paper in the bibliography, but, uh, there's a change in brain structure that accompanies literacy where there's a diminishment of um, some social processing uh, material in the right hemisphere that recognizes faces. And then there's an enlargement of, you know, like some of the left hemispheres uh, structures for, you know, dealing, you know, dealing with some other information processing stuff that's good for text, right? So you can see this other way in which the left hemisphere has commandeered a little bit more of the overall computing power of the brain in response to the acquisition of a skill that it is proficient at. It has, you know, like suppressed a little bit of the right brain's activity to develop that competency. And so we will look at this insane kind of hall of fucking mirrors we have entered, this insane tangled web of feedback loops that is the left hemisphere's modes of processing and the world the left hemisphere has created, the modern world we inhabit today. And then we'll also look at, like I said, you know, times that... Um, cultures seem to be actually explicitly or people seem to be actually explicitly conceptualizing themselves in these terms as these two different types of being inhabiting one body and how the uh, development of the terminology right and left to defer, refer to two types of politics is just one of many manifestations of this tendency. And we will also just look at, like I said, ways in which various categories of everything from mystical experience to urban planning dialogues reflect an explicit tension between these two types of processing, a partial awareness that we are comprised uh, of these irreconcilably uh, different modes of perception. We'll look at a whole bunch of things like Heraclitus saying that all things are born of strife for the war, that war is the father of all things or however else it's translated, where it seems like people are getting some sense of this reality. It's going to be fascinating. So until next time, friends, good luck navigating the eternal war between the two irreconcilably different versions of yourself that exist within your body. And we will talk again soon.
There is no plan. There is no plan.